Amazing to have you with us. Okay, we are going to be jumping in now to the preach. And so if you've been with us, uh, last week we kicked off a new series within the book of Acts. Uh, so the book of Acts is our main uh, book that we're in for the whole year. And this is a mini-series within the book of Acts. Uh, the series is called The Gospel According to Acts. Uh, and it's a three-week series. We're looking at gospel messages that were actually preached within the book of Acts. Today we're looking at a message uh, preached by Stephen. Now, I don't know if you have ever been uh, in a church gathering or some other type of meeting where there's been a sermon preached, and you thought to yourself, wow, that was a sermon to die for. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever walked out of church thinking that was a sermon to die for. Well, today we're in Acts chapter 7. Uh, it's actually the longest recorded sermon in the whole book of Acts. And uh, spoiler alert, at the end of the sermon, the preacher literally dies. <laughs> Okay, it was literally a sermon worth dying for. Uh, in, more accurately, Stephen was actually killed for his preaching. It was a gospel worth dying for, and in this moment, in Acts chapter 7, Stephen becomes the first martyr ever in the Christian faith. Happens right over here. All right, so uh, we find Stephen in this chapter standing before the Jewish authorities. It's the same religious leaders that had previously arrested Peter and John. Actually preached about that in another series. Uh, while Peter and John were only sort of roughed up and released later, Stephen's sermon that we're going to look at today was actually too much for these religious leaders to stand. Before Stephen was even finished preaching this message, they bullrushed him, they dragged him out of the city, and they stoned him to death for the sermon that he was preaching. And yet the incredible thing to take note of is that even though they killed the messenger, the message could not be stopped. Amen. How many of you know the message of Jesus cannot be stopped? And that's what we see over here. In fact, the blood of Stephen only served to fertilize the spread of the gospel even further. The message of Jesus will never be stopped. And as we look over this long chapter, we're reminded of the power that exists in the gospel. Even in the face of people who resent the gospel, even in the face of people who resist the gospel, it will continue to have immense power. You see, the witness of Stephen, both in Stephen's life and even in Stephen's death, calls us today in our day and age to fearlessly and courageously and bravely and boldly and audaciously even proclaim the gospel that has been given to us. And even if it's necessary to give our lives for that gospel, we exist to see the gospel of Jesus proclaimed. Amen. And so we're not going to read the entire of Acts chapter 7. It's super long, but I'm going to jump into the crux of the matter. I'm going to jump into the part of the sermon where things really started heating up and uh, some crazy things started happening. And so if you're following along with me, uh, you can jump to Acts chapter 7, verse 51, and we're going to read to verse 60. Uh, verse 51, and this is uh, how hectically it starts. <laughs> Stephen says, you stiff-necked people. <laughs> Everybody say stiff-necked people. <laughs> you must know it's not going well. You stiff-necked people, then it gets worse. Uncircumcised in heart and ears. He says, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Your things are heating up in the room. Verse 52, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? 
and they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you now betrayed and murdered. Verse 53, you who received the law as delivered by angels did not keep it. Now, when they heard these things, it says they were enraged, and even they ground their teeth at him, okay? Have you ever said something to someone that makes them ground their teeth at you? Uh, but he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And Stephen said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears, literally blocked their ears and rushed at him. Verse 58, And then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Verse 59, as they were stoning Stephen, he called out. He said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. He died. That was the end of his sermon. As we read about this literal sermon to die for, what I've done is I've picked out three main things that I think pertains to us, that we can draw out for us even in today's times. It's three Bs, and the first B that I'm picking out of this sermon is Stephen's Bible. His Bible, you see, with his Bible, Stephen counted his opponents. If you go back, you'll see the backdrop of the sermon is actually in the chapter before this, in chapter 6. And what was happening is that we find that Stephen's preaching and his ministry had started to rattle and upset the Jewish authorities. And when they could not overcome the power and persuasion with which Jesus spoke, they conjured up some false charges against Stephen. They came up with some dodgy, shady, false testimonies about Stephen. And there were two basic charges. The first charge that they came against Stephen was, A, that he had said blasphemous things about Moses and God. And then the second charge that they came up with is that he had said blasphemous things about the temple. And when you get to chapter 7, the very first verse says, And the high priest said, Are these things so? Okay. And so what we need to learn over here, what we need to understand uh, as we look at this is the, the reason why Stephen preached the way he did in this chapter is that he was answering that question. He was answering the question of, are these things true? And how did he answer that question? He used his Bible. That's what he did. He took the scripture and he used the Bible, and there are certain ways that he did it. So the first way that he did uh, used his Bible is that he, the facts of scripture were his argument. The facts of this Bible were his argument. You see, rather than attacking the credibility of the witnesses that had accused him, or rather than saying, I just want to clarify myself, I just want to make myself clear of what I actually said, basically all that Stephen did is he retold the whole story of the Old Testament. He drew a line from Abraham all the way through until his current day, 
And so there was basically two basic points that he was, he was wanting to bring across. As Stephen said, this is actually just the story of the Old Testament. And there's two basic things that happened in the story of the Old Testament. A, that there has always been a history of the revelation of God. But B, there has always been a history of the rejection of God. That's the story. And guess what? Even today in 2022, it's still the same story. There's always been a history of the revelation of God, and there's always still been a history of the rejection of God. That's all that he was trying to do. And so in his sermon, Stephen is speaking primarily of God's work through Abraham, and then Joseph, and then Moses, and then the prophets. And he pointed out how over the time, um, God continually raised up deliverers to save his people. He continually did it. He, he, he continued to give people his word. He continued to keep his word to them. But what Stephen was saying is every time, while God was faithful to his people, the people are not faithful to God. At each point in the revelation of God, Stephen pointed out that the people, time and time and time again, end up rejecting God. And so, for example, in Egypt, the Hebrews initially did not want Moses to deliver them. But then having been delivered, what do we find them doing? We find them, instead of worshiping God, we find them worshiping false idols and false gods. And so I think that there's an important lesson even for us in this today. You know, in the world that we live in today, and it's a crazy time, 2022, hey? Can I get a, can I get a what? <laughs> 2022. Uh, it's, a, it's a weird time that we're in. But even in the times that we're in today, when the world asks us for the basis of our beliefs, when the world asks us for the basis of our practices as Christians, we have to just do one thing, and that's point them back to the authority of this Word of God. We have to point them back to the authority of the Bible. Now, are there other arguments that we can offer uh, to, to, to prove our faith? Certainly there are. Everything that we believe is supported by external evidence besides the Bible. In fact, there's many Christians who specialize in that type of apologetic type of ministry. It's what they're doing at Institute at the moment. But at the end of the day, all of our arguments should be rooted in that is what the Lord says through His Word. You know that old kiddies song, we stand upon the Word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. That's what we stand upon. And as we watch Stephen using his Bible to counter the accusation of his enemies, we need to note that it wasn't only the facts of Scripture, it wasn't only the facts of the Bible that were in his argument, but I think that it's important for us to also understand that it was his familiarity of Scripture that was his advantage. The familiarity of what's in this book was his advantage. You see, these Jewish religious leaders may not have liked Stephen's preaching, but one thing that they definitely could not refute is that Stephen knew his Bible. He knew what was in there. And though Stephen did not necessarily stand there and quote scriptures word for word, he clearly had studied them thoroughly enough, and he clearly knew well enough the narrative and the storyline of the Bible, of the Word of God. And so he didn't stand and have his Bible in his hands that day, but obviously what we can see is that he had the Bible hidden in his heart. Amen? The Bible was hidden in his heart. Psalm 119, verse 11, I have stored up your Word in my heart. 
that I might not sin against you. And that is something for us to remember today, that the Word of God is something we need to carry around with us. We need to understand it thoroughly. We need to carry this around with us in our hearts and use this as a defense for our faith. He knew his Bible, Stephen, even better than the so-called experts that he was preaching to. He had it hidden in his heart. I think that it's so unfortunate that in a country like ours, South Africa, where so many of us grew up in a system of uh, education that was founded on Christian principles and founded on the Bible, so many of us grew up uh, learning the Bible and learning about the Bible, but actually so many of us in this country still actually don't know anything about the Bible. There was a study that was recently done highlighting biblical illiteracy in this country, and it found that, among other things, only half of the adults in this country could name the four Gospels, and less than half of the adults in this country knew that Genesis was the first book of the Bible. It's, it's sad to think that uh, in a country where we're allowed to grow up in the Word of God, we know so little about it. And so I think at least part of what we can learn here in Stephen's sermon is that if we are going to be witnesses for God, we had better know the Word of God. Amen. We need to set ourselves up to know the Word of God if we're going to be witnesses for Him. The gospel that we preach to this lost world that we find ourselves in is first and foremost revealed in the Bible. And yet what kind of witnesses can we really expect to be if we know all the lyrics to the latest Justin Bieber album, which is important if you're going to be at his concert in October, amen? <laughs> but we know so little about the language of Jesus. What does that say about us? John Wesley, I, I, I love this quote, he said, I am a man of one book. I am a man of one book. And so many of the most powerful witnesses in the Christian faith over the years are witnesses who have been saturated in the Word of God. Wouldn't we be a people that desire to be saturated in the Word of God? As we continue to look uh, further into Stephen's sermon over here, the second B that jumps out at, at me, if you take taking notes, is boldness. It's Stephen's boldness. You see, I can imagine that for the majority of Stephen's message, I can imagine that the crowd was sitting there and nodding along in agreement and maybe the occasional amen. Come on now, that's good. Can somebody give me a come on now? There we go. I, you know, maybe. I don't know what they did in those days. But they probably nodded along in approval of what Stephen was saying, because he was just retelling the story, right, of the Old Testament. But what we know, actually, because now we've read it, is that Stephen was actually heading to a point, <laughs> you know. He, he, he was specifically heading towards a knife point, and he knew that this knife point that he was heading to was going to pierce these people in the heart. They don't know what was coming. And I've never thought of this before until... I wrote this, but I don't know if you've ever thought of a type of preaching that is almost a type of exorcism, okay? You see, the preaching of the gospel will always challenge and confront the sinful blindness of those who are held captive by the power of the devil. I'll say that again. The preaching of the gospel always challenges and confronts the sinful blindness to those who are held captive by the power of the devil. 
And so when this type of preaching takes place, when this type of bold preaching takes place, there will always be a discomforting conviction that will fall upon the hearers. And that was certainly true uh, here as we see Stephen preaching, just with this boldness and this, uh, almost this audacity in his words. You see, I noticed how Stephen's bold proclamation affected his hearers. There's two things. I think the first way that it affected his hearers is that we see that the crowd was indicted by his word. They were indicted by it. And the whole reason that Stephen had done this and he had reviewed the whole history of Israel was to bring this current generation of Jewish leaders to a reality check. How hectic was it when he turns the message around on his own listeners in verse 51 when he says this, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. It's just hectic. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Suddenly there's this knife point coming at them. And then he adds this biting question in verse 52 where he says, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, one whom you have now betrayed and you have murdered. And then the knife gets even deeper in verse 53 when he says, You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not even keep the law. That's a knife point. And I think that kind of bold preaching has an effect You know, in many translations, verse 54 says that they were cut to the heart. I don't know when last you were cut to the heart when you heard some preaching. It it literally means their hearts were torn in two. And Stephen says, you are actually guilty. He's saying to them, you are guilty of the same rejection of God that your fathers were. It's happening again. Now you have killed his son, and now you have disobeyed the law. And those words had a strong indictment on this crowd. You see, Stephen's witnesses are reminding us once again that the good news of the gospel that we offer to the world oftentimes needs to be delivered through a syringe of strong medicine. Amen? It sometimes has to happen. Because the hearts of sinners need to be convicted before they can be corrected. Every sinner's heart needs to be convicted before it can be corrected. How many of you know that the gospel exposes the cancer of sin before it attacks it or heals it? It first has to expose the cancer of sin before it can attack and heal it. And I think in the times that we live in, and we can just be too tempted, we, we can fall into this temptation to try soften the gospel a little bit. You know what I mean? We, we want to try and make it a little bit more palatable for people. We want to make it a little bit more pleasant uh, for people to, to, to their ears. But I think that it would do us some good to remember that even we ourselves were first indicted by the gospel before we were delighted by the gospel. It's actually what the world needs. And the crowd over here is indicted by the word. The second thing that we can notice over there while Stephen was preaching so boldly is that the crowd was indignant to the word. We actually find that, that they were now indignant to the word. You see, Stephen gets up and he's boldly proclaiming the truth to this crowd. And oftentimes, how many of you know the truth hurts? The truth can hurt, but sometimes that hurt that we receive can be a healthy hurt 
Because why? It brings a sorrow that can lead to repentance. We saw that last week when we were talking about the day of Pentecost. A sorrow that led to repentance. That can happen. Uh, at other times, the wound of the truth doesn't have that effect. It just makes people plain mad. If you hear last week, Duncan spoke about that the, the sun, the same sun, can either melt the ice or harden the clay of our hearts. Over here, what we've seen happening is it's making these people angry. It's hardening their hearts, not leading them to a place of repentance. And verse 54, again, now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. <laughs> Literally, can you imagine that gnashing sitting there? Like I can just picture it. Everybody started gnashing their teeth. You could hear it. Imagine them getting red in the face in their anger. Their jaws are clenched, and they're just getting more and more angry. Because Stephen's preaching made some of these people mad, but the truth of the matter is that being a gospel witness today won't necessarily win you any popularity contests either. Amen? Being a witness to just the truth is not always going to make you popular. You see, if we share the gospel as we should, if we share the gospel just with boldness, just with clarity, inevitably there are going to be people who don't like it. It's not what they want to hear. But if, if, if ever it becomes the case where the world finds no problem with the gospel that we preach, then there is probably a problem with the way that we preach in the gospel. Luke 6.26 says that. Jesus said, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. It's not going to win you popularity contests. I think what's a useful way to think about this is being a witness of Jesus to the world should not look like, we should not be like an advertising billboard that's put up on the side of the road with the intention of attracting as much attention from the people driving past as possible to kind of appeal to their interests or to appeal to their needs. We shouldn't be an advertising billboard trying to appeal to people's interests and needs. Our witness should be more of a road sign that simply tells people the truth about what's ahead. Amen? Some people might not appreciate that. Some people not, might not appreciate a speed limit. They might not appreciate a warning light. They might not appreciate a caution sign. But it's our job to tell them boldly the truth of what lies ahead. That should be our life as a witness of Christ. And so we see that with his Bible, Stephen counted his opponents. With his boldness, Stephen convicted his opponents. And as we look at this text, the last B that we see is Stephen's blood. Stephen's blood. You see, with his blood, we see that Stephen actually conquered his opponents. The truth of the matter is that before Stephen could even finish his sermon that day, the crowd decided to finish Stephen. And their anger against Stephen reached such a heat it says that they would not even hear it anymore. It says that they blocked their ears. They couldn't stand it anymore. They rushed him outside to stone him to death. Now, as you probably know, that that stoning would have been a terrible thing. It, it, it would have involved this angry mob hurling him outside, hurling heavy rocks and stones upon his body, painfully bashing him and finally crushing him to the point of death. 
And so there's no doubt that that would have been a horrific and horrible scene that was taking place. But I think that as the blood of Stephen seeped out from beneath that pile of rocks, what the mob didn't realize was that both Stephen and Stephen's message had actually triumphed that day. What the executioners thought was a vindication for themselves, the Holy Spirit tells us was actually a victory for the martyred preacher and for the gospel that he was preaching. It was a victory that day. And so the blood of Stephen conquered his foes. I think there's two, two aspects of it that we can take out. The first thing is to consider is the reward they initiated by Stephen's death. The reward that was actually initiated by Stephen's death. Because even before they la laid a hand on Stephen, it seems that the preacher knew what was coming. I think this is the most beautiful part of the story. It seems as if heaven had prepared Stephen for what was coming that day. As this angry mob started rushing towards him, verse 55 says, But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Heaven had prepared him for this moment. And in verse 56, Stephen told them what he was seeing, which probably wasn't great because it made them all the more angry. The text says that they covered their ears so not to hear anything more from what the, the victim was saying. And nevertheless, and what an incredible testimony this is, that what did Jesus see? What did Stephen see? He saw Jesus standing up to welcome him into eternity. How beautiful is that? I think what makes this vision so beautiful and so significant is that in Hebrews chapter 1, it actually tells us that after Christ ascended back into heaven, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of his Father to signify that his work was now done. Jesus sat down, but it seems now that as a reward for Stephen's faithfulness, as a reward for Stephen's martyrdom, Jesus himself stood up to his feet from his eternal seat to welcome Stephen into his eternal home. The Savior who had himself suffered and died at the hands of wicked men now stands up to his nail-scarred feet as a testimony of his approval of Stephen. How beautiful is that? And I'm sure that the rocks still hurt. I'm sure that his wounds still bled. But when you think about it, I think that the suffering of this moment that Stephen endured was but a light affliction compared to the glory of seeing the Son of God stand up to his nail-pierced feet to welcome Stephen home. And so even though today we can't see Jesus standing in heaven, he is just as much there today as he was on that day when Stephen died. And the knowledge of that, the knowledge that Jesus is there, should be a comfort to us as much as it was a comfort to Stephen on that day. You know, let the world do to us what we want. They can never take away from us that reward that is waiting for us. That one day we will see Jesus face to face in eternity. That one day Jesus will welcome us home and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Amen. And so that's the reward that they actually initiated by Stephen's death. And then 
the second thing to consider is the result. The result that they actually initiated by Stephen's death. I love this quote from author G.C. Morgan, and he's writing about the end of the chapter, and he says, the story ends with the mangled body of Stephen. No, it does not so end. It ends with a brief word to suggest something still to come. And that suggestive word in the text is that Saul was consenting unto his death. You see, the mob thought that they had silenced this powerful preacher, but what they didn't realize, what they, they had actually done is they had set in motion a chain of events that would actually raise up another preacher that was even more powerful, that was even more persuasive than Stephen. Saul was there and he watched Stephen's death and he was complicit with Stephen's death. But we know that the day was coming that Saul would find himself the savior for himself. That Saul would become the apostle Paul. The gospel would flow passionately from his lips. The gospel would flow passionately from his pen. And it would bury its enemies as the stones had buried Stephen. That's what happened in this moment. There's a famous second century church father that said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You see, the messengers of the gospel may be persecuted. The messengers of this gospel might be killed, but their blood does not dry up and disappear. It becomes actually the fuel that raises up even more witnesses in its stead. The devil and his evil forces can no more stop the gospel by killing its preachers than you can stop mathematics by breaking a calculator. Amen? The devil and his evil forces can no more stop the gospel by killing its preachers than we can stop maths by breaking a calculator. It will never stop. And so they, they shut the mouth with which Stephen preached, but they only served to spread the message that that mouth proclaimed. I thought it was so interesting that the word martyr literally translated just means witness. Martyr means witness. And so in reality, what we see over here is that Stephen the gospel martyr was an even greater witness than Stephen the gospel preacher. Even a greater witness. And the text says that as he was dying, he said two things. I don't know if you noticed that. As Stephen was dying, he said two things. The first thing he said was, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. But the second thing that he said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. I don't know about you, but that sounds familiar to me. Who else said that? It sounds like the very thing that Jesus said as he hung on the cross, as he was killed. I think it's so amazing that Stephen's greatest witness was the fact that he reflected his Savior. Amen. There's something in that for us today. His greatest witness was that he reflected Jesus. And I want you to know this morning that your greatest witness will be when you just purely reflect Jesus. That is what we are here for. We need to take the word of God. We need to stand boldly in the face of a world who probably does not want to hear it and declare plainly the gospel truth of Jesus Christ. That is what we are here for. And yet, as we boldly witness, we're not trying to be morons about it. 
and I wanted to throw this in. As we stand and as we witness, we're not trying to be morons about it. We're trying to be like Jesus. Amen? We're trying to reflect Jesus. And so that our prayer is that whether by our life or if God wills, it's by our death that the world would see Jesus in us. The Christ who died to save us has left us a gospel worth dying for. He left us a gospel that is worth dying for. We all know that Jesus left us with the great commission, right? Not the great suggestion. The great commission. That is what we're all about. And so we might not have to die for it, as Stephen did. But nonetheless, we have to speak it out. We have to live it out until we die, until we meet the Lord face to face that we're preaching about. That is our joy and that is our responsibility. Amen. Amen. Awesome. Well, coincidentally, uh, as God works, today is actually a special day. It's... um, it's the day that Open Doors Ministry, which is a ministry uh, that raises awareness about um, persecution of Christians around the world, uh, is getting all churches around the world to uh, talk about it and to hear about it and to raise awareness about it. And so uh, I wanted to ask you just to look at the screen behind me as we see a short video clip from them, and then we're going to speak a little bit into that afterwards. I was trying to live normal life and especially trying to uh, keep a secret about the book I read, about uh, my relationship with the uh, uh, Lord Jesus. But you know, you can't hide the Lord. He's a bright, shining light. And uh, soon my parents found out, soon neighbors found out, and soon it was heard by the religious authorities. And I was taken to questioning and when I was in front of all people that were questioning me whether all this was true, that I have read the, the Bible and whether I have believed in Lord Jesus, I knew I should not say yes. But in spite of myself, I found myself saying yes, that I was a follower of Lord Jesus. My main ministry is the hospitality. People from my country comes where I am for medical treatment. So I open my house for them. I provide for them a free place to stay and free food. And also go with them as a medical guide and a translator. And it is at times hard because these very people will sometimes don't want to eat with me because I'm a follower of Jesus. Thank you so much for everyone who is praying. I know that there have been people who have been praying for me for years and have never uh, ever met me, and, uh, but they continuously pray. And I just want to thank them uh, for their faithfulness to the Lord. I'm not able to go back to my community, even though time passes, I will never get used to that. It's painful, but I also know that I belong to the community. God, and I do.
How awesome. Would you join me in welcoming my friend Abigail onto stage? She's going to chat to us about Open Doors. Big round of applause. Go for it. Morning, everyone. It's just so amazing that we can come and gather together today and worship freely, um, and those online as well, um, that we're able to hear the Word of God, and we don't have to worry about um, what other people are going to think and, and what danger we're putting ourselves into. Um, and that, that is just such a gift that we, we really mustn't take for granted. Um, and because of this, I'd like to ask you if you would share um, Jesus no matter what the cost is. Um, in John 15 verse 18, it says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And in 2 Timothy 3 verse 12, it says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Um, and there's so many people around the world in many, many countries that don't get to worship um, freely like we, we do here. And today I'd just really like to encourage you all to, to be praying for these people um, and to, yeah, to just to decide or know where and how um, you would like to, to stand with, with them. And prayer is really an amazing way um, to, to do this. I'm just going to share some scary facts with you. Um, approximately one in every seven Christians around the world is persecuted because of their faith. 5,898 Christians are called for their, killed for their faith um, and for various re reasons, and this works out at approximately 16 people per day. Every year, 5,110 churches and other Christian buildings are attacked um, because of, of their faith and what they're preaching. And this works out at approximately 14 churches per day. Um, 6,175 Christians are detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, and imprisoned for their faith every year. And again, this works out at approximately seven um, people per day. And then also, 3,829 Christians are abducted every year, um, and this works out at about 11 people per day. So by the end of today, approximately 11 people could be abducted because of what they believe and who they believe in. Um, and also, um, Open Doors has um, what they call a watch list, and they've released some new stats, and there's the top 10 countries include Afghanistan, North Korea, and four African countries. Four countries on our um, continent, people are not free to worship Jesus and to, to um, be open about their faith. And they have to do it in secret or they are going to be um, hurt or persecuted in some way. And so today, <clears throat> I'd just like to, one, tell you and make you aware of, of the work that Open Doors is doing. And they are helping people in various ways, specifically with Bibles, spiritual care, leadership training, resources to rebuild churches, um, specifically ones that have been destroyed through bombing, um, homes of people that have been destroyed, and they're even going about rescuing Christians that need to be taken out of situations um, where they find themselves. Um, and Open Doors is, is looking for, for prayer partners and financial partners, but very, very specifically prayer partners, people who are going to stand and pray um, and these people who are being persecuted are our brothers and sisters um, in Christ. We might not know them. 
we might not even have ever been um, to the places they live, um, but we can stand together with them. And this is what I'd really like to ask you to do um, today. And if you'd like any more um, uh, information or even specific guidance in how to pray, um, I'm going to be in the coffee area and I have a, a little pamphlet for you and you can fill out your details and Open Doors will send you um, their uh, newsletter and their prayer calendar and give you some more information and some guidance on how to do it. And even if you are wanting to give to this, um, there's some banking details as well. Um, so if you'd like to see me um, after the gathering um, by the coffee area, I'll be there. And I'd just like to, to close with this scripture verse. James 2 verse 14 to 17 says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking food, and one of you say to them, Go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Mm. So I'd really like to encourage you to stand with the persecuted church today. Um, it didn't just stop with Stephen being um, stoned for his faith. It's continuing um, till today, till last week. Um, there were a whole lot of people, people around the world who were killed because of, of the Jesus that they believe in. So thank you so much for listening. Awesome. Thanks so much, Abby. Uh, you can join us on stage. I'm asking Keegan to come join us. Why don't we stand up? It's a good opportunity this morning just to actually spend some time and just pray uh, into this. But Keegan here uh, is one of our interns at City this year, also passionate about this. And so uh, just going to ask him to share and then lead us in a time of prayer. And then we're going to go into uh, our closing worship song. Okay, yeah. Awesome, guys. So just before we pray, I thought I'd just uh, share two stories about the persecuted church. So uh, something that Abigail was actually referring to was last week Sunday in Nigeria, there was actually over 50 Christians killed in a church in a gunman attack um, in southwestern Nigeria. And countless more were injured and a whole bunch of people were abducted as well, including a lot of children, unfortunately. And this is one of the realities that the persecuted church is facing. Um, and just as I think about the persecuted church, another interesting stat, I guess, is a year ago, there was about 300 million Christians around the world being persecuted. And a year later now, we see it's increased by about 40 million. And I remember when I found out this stat, I was super heavy on my heart. I was like, what? Why, God? Why are there so many people having to suffer? And he said to me, yeah, I hear you, but the church is growing. Be happy. There's more people being persecuted, but there's more Christians. That's the good part, right? And just like Stephen who died for, his, for this gospel, for this Jesus that we also believe in, it is so worth it. And these people in the persecuted church, it is so worth it for them. And I just want to share one more story before we go into time of prayer. It actually takes place in one of these African nations in Egypt. And something that is very comfortable, uh, very much persecuted to Islamic State, so they're not about that life. But uh, there's this huge, huge church that actually takes place in a cave. Uh, thousands of Christians come and gather every week. And uh, one of the people from Open Doors went and visited this church. And he was telling me a story. He goes to this back room, and uh, there's like a bunch of pictures of these people. And it looks like possessions of theirs. Um, and there's like the most recent one that's got a date on it from a week ago, which is this man who was about 63 years old, I think. And the one before that was an eight-year-old boy. And the guy from Open Doors asks, 
what is this? It's like, these are the people who've been killed from our church. These are the martyrs of our church. There was over 130 of them. And he looks to the left and there's eight open spots with no pictures, just empty. So he asks, what's this for? It's like, people threaten to kill us while we're ready. We're willing to make that sacrifice because that's the gospel we believe in. That's the hope we have. Jesus saved our lives, so we're willing to give it all for him. So they can come. We're ready for them. That's the truth of this persecuted church. That's our brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering. And you know what? No matter how bad it gets, and there's some stories that I don't even want to share. It's insane. But they have such faith, and all they ask for is not money, not anything else. They just ask for prayer. And they're so grateful for that. And that's something that we can do. Remember, we're a church here locally but we're a church big c as well a global church and we're united like that and we can unite in prayer so that's what i encourage you guys to do not just now but in your own time um we actually open doors prayers together at 12 26 every day uh, it's from first corinthians 12 26 which says if one part of the body suffers the whole body suffers and if one part rejoices the whole body rejoices and that's us so anyways that all being said let's just close our eyes and pray together God, I just want to pray for the open, uh, the open doors in the persecuted church, Lord. I want to lift up those brothers and sisters around the world who are, are going through some things we can't even imagine, Lord, that you will just encourage them, that every step of the way, no matter how hard it gets, no matter how difficult it is, they look up and they see you, and they see the cross, and they're reminded of why we do this, Lord. So I pray that you will just encourage them, and they'll understand that it's so, so worth it, Lord. And I want to pray for those also who are persecuting them, God as they're picking up the stones, as they're throwing them, as they're doing things that are unimaginable, Lord, in a moment, they just hesitate and your spirit moves, God, because you, you died to save people, sinners. Well, that's all of us, Lord. So they see you and they stop for a moment and they wonder, why am I doing this? And hopefully they turn to you, Lord. And God, I also want to pray for every single one of us in this room that we find encouragement from the persecuted church to just look up at you, God, that this is so worth it. Every single moment in our lives, it is so worth it to praise and honor you, God. So we worship you, Lord, and we thank you for the work that you're doing in the church. Amen.